Alrighty, so if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Second uh, Samuel chapter 9, and that's where we'll be today. Um, we'll have a little bit of a precursor before we get there, but if you haven't been here, we are in a series called The Chase. Uh, basically, we're looking at the life of David and how his life was almost like a pursuit after God, right? Was, and, and God says that David is a man after my own heart, and we see this picture it kind of uh, the first week. I kind of unpacked the fact that we're not chasing a God who's running from us, right? If we were chasing a God who was running from us, we would never catch Him because God is infinitely greater than we could ever think or imagine, right? So it's not that we're chasing God, grasping after Him, but but He's actually pursuing us. And this idea of the chase—it's it's our heart, it's us pursuing Him back. And then there's this beautiful harmony of a relationship that happens in that. So that's kind of where the title of this called The Chase is. It's all about the heart. When we talked about the first week, it's about the surrendered heart and that when you have a surrendered heart that God's calling us to places and he's, he's calling us to a future, a future that's going to be fulfilling, a future that's going to make an impact. And the way that we get that is we start with a surrendered heart, but then along that process, there's going to be giants that we face, right? We looked at David and Goliath and how, how God calls us to face these giants and and he's not facing, we're not facing them alone, but that the David is actually a picture of Jesus who has fought the battle for us. And we are already victorious because of what Jesus has done. And so, so there's this surrendered heart, and then there's a courageous heart. And so this week I want to look at the heart of grace, right? So during our time of prayer, we've listened to, to Amazing Grace, you know, my chains are gone. And there's this, this idea of grace that I want to kind of unpack today. And as I was kind of studying it and getting into it, I realized that that grace is one of those things that it kind of hit me with a, a heavy weight because it's used so much in the church today, right? It's used so often. We, we talk about grace and we sing about grace and we hear people say grace and, and there's all these things that that, <laughs> that that grace means. And so it can be kind of daunting, but it can also end up being watered down. And it, it, I... Uh, I was uh, having a conversation. Have you ever talked to somebody who doesn't feel the weight of something they should feel the weight of? For example, I was at work, I work at the bank, and, and I was a teller, and I'm having a conversation with this customer, and, and he's telling me that he's about to go get married. And I'm like, oh, marriage, this is an awesome thing. And so I'm like, hey, congratulations, that's awesome. You're about to get married. This is a big thing. And he was like, I mean, it's my fourth one, so, you know, <laughs> and he was like, had zero excitement, but he's like, she wants to get married, so, you know, okay, I, I said, okay, you know, it, it was almost just like, just another relationship, it was just another blind date for him, right, but I was like, marriage has this weight, but for him, it's like, hey, number four, well, we'll see what happens, right, he lost the weight of it, so, so what I want to kind of get at today is I want us to, to feel and grasp what grace really means, it's kind of scary when we think about the fact that it gets watered down. I know that um, I had this moment of almost brokenness a, a couple weeks ago that there was actually a, a shooting at UNC Charlotte. And because Lauren's from the area, we actually know a lot of people that are around that area. And so I, I got like really nervous and, and like worried. And, and so I get online and I start doing research and, and I see, okay, well, there's only two people shot. There's, there's this moment where like, wait, only two people shot, right? And we live at a time where these mass shootings have become so prevalent, right? And this is not, I'm not making a political point here, okay? So don't hear that. I'm not saying, and this is not about gun control, wherever you land on that. But what I'm saying is, is that we're at a place where, whether it's just the fact that there's 24-hour news, or, but the fact that two young college students don't get to cross the stage. Two students who have been cramming for finals didn't even get to take them. 
And, it, and I thought, well, only two were, were killed. There's this moment where grace should hit us in a way that says, man, you know what? I was once was lost, but now I'm found. It should hit us with the weight that, that it should almost cripple us. There's a brokenness that comes from a Savior that died on a cross for our sins, and it brings this, this heavy weight, but it's, it's a liberating weight because grace brings freedom. And there's, there's this, it's just this, this, this moment of, of, wow, grace should never lose its moving power in our lives. Grace should never lose that momentum, that change that it brings and so what I want to get at today is I just want to look at, at a, a story of grace in David's life that I think brings it back up and, and raises up the momentum and the movement of grace. And, and if you look at look up the definition, if you ask people, especially, you know, I went to Bible college and there was debates on different types of grace and all this other stuff. And, and kind of the, the general simple definition is grace is unmerited favor, right? Unmerited favor. But what does that even mean? What does that even mean? So I want to look at, at David's life and see if we can unpack what this unmerited favor means. So we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, but before we get there, kind of a, there, we've been following David as he was a shepherd boy, David and Goliath, he's anointed to be king, and now he's at this place where this change in power is happening, right? So you've got Saul and his bloodline, that's the kingdom. But God has used Samuel to anoint David to be the next king. And so it's finally come to a place where, where this change in power, this shift in power is happening. And so what's going on is, is Saul, in order for that to happen, Saul and his entire bloodline has to be removed for David to be king. And so there's this sense of, <clears throat> of, a, of a battle going on. So Saul and his his leading general, Abner, and then you've got David and his leading general, Joab. And there's kind of this David versus Saul, this Abner versus Joab battle that raises up. And, and what happens is it kind of starts with Abner, right? Because Abner's like, okay, I'm this guy. I've got this high position in the army. I've got this power. If David takes over, you know, at best, I lose my power. I lose my position in the army. At worst, I lose my life. Right? And he's like, this cannot happen. So, so Saul and several of his sons are actually killed in battle. And so Abner's at this place, and he's like, I've got to keep this thing going. Like, I've got to stay. So he goes out, and he finds Ishbosheth. Everybody say that, right? If you haven't had kids yet, and you're looking for a name, there you go, Ishbosheth, right? So he goes, and he finds Ishbosheth, which is originally his name was Ishbal, but Baal was what the... the Canaanites used as their god. So when people, when the Hebrews were writing scripture, they didn't want to write the word Baal. So they changed the word to Ishbosheth, Bosheth meaning shame, right? And so, so this, his name has now been changed to Slayer of Shame, basically, right? And so you've got Ishbosheth, and, and Abner, stay with me, goes out and finds him, and he's the grandson of Saul, right? And he says, okay, now we've got, we've got the bloodline of Saul here. We're going to go to battle. And he, so he, at the, the battle starts with Abner. And so you've got this thing that's going on between Abner and Joab, Saul and David, and David is, is at this point where he's got all the power, right? He's the king. He's the one that he's defeated Goliath. He's won several battles. People want to follow David. They don't want to follow Saul anymore. So David's got this power, but there's this kind of these people that are coming up trying to keep him from being king, trying to keep Saul's bloodline alive. And so then eventually Abner is killed in battle. David hears of this and there's this sense of your enemy has been defeated, right? And so David should be 
have thrown a feast, celebrating. And he actually has this moment where he's mourning. He's mourning because this great general, who he was at once a servant for, he says, hey, look, this is a hero. The man that's trying to kill David, David calls him a hero and calls the nation to mourn his death. That doesn't make sense, right? And then you keep going with the story, you keep going with the story, and there's another son, and, and he's, the, he's the last one in line to keep David from being king. And so these two men sneak into his house at night and murder him in his sleep, right? Then they bring his head. Look, we're still in the Game of Thrones time, okay? So then he bring, they bring his head <coughs> to David and say, look what we did. We took down your last known enemy. We have now made you king. There is no threat to you. And they're like bragging and they're boasting before David. And David looks at them and says, what have you done? What have you done? You didn't kill him in battle. You snuck into his house and you murdered him. And David actually has those two guys executed for murder. He's, He's the new king. He's the new king. And the way you do things, he's saying, look, that might have been the past example, but that's not how we do things now. He leads in the way. He says, hey, look, the way it used to be, that's not how we're doing it. He's trying to get this thing across to say it's a new time. He's trying to get this new thing across that says, hey, it's different from how it used to be. It's, it's not like that culture. It's not the norm. And listen, you can't hold ancient practices to modern standards, okay? So this is, this is not how we do things, but this is how they did things. And, and everybody had to be destroyed. And David, David would be right to celebrate in this moment. But instead, he... He hesitates. He he should be wanting to destroy the entire line of Saul. Saul wants to do it to him. Saul's got people trying to murder David. Saul's armies are trying to defeat David. And David hesitates. He he says, I want to lead in a different way. I want to lead with grace. I want grace to be our focus. And was it normal in David's time to lead like that? And there, there I say it, that it's, it's not normal in our time to lead like that. If somebody wrongs you, you get a bat. If somebody wrongs you, they pay the price. But if we look at Scripture, we see grace being held up. We see grace being the leading example. So what is this unmerited favor? What is this? Grace is unmerited. Let's just take that first word, right? Unmerited. It means undeserved, unearned, right? It's not something you can grasp. These men were trying to kill David. They did nothing to deserve honor, yet he gave it to them. They did nothing to deserve the the, the mourning that David had for them. They did nothing to deserve that. Yet David gave it to them. It, it's, it's like, if I take an example of grace, right? So I have uh, this pastor friend, and he tells a story. He's got a couple of older kids, right? And so when one of the kids were younger, he, he was telling about uh, trying to teach them grace. And so then years later, the, the, he's talking to him about grace, and the son's like in his 20s now. He says, you know, I remember I remember a story of grace that you, that you did for me. And so the the, the guy, he's telling this story, and he's like, hey, you know, my son was younger. He got a yearbook when he was in high school. And they all, they pay, it was like 90 bucks. They all got the yearbook or whatever the price was. And a couple of the buddies thought it would be a good idea to go in and 
draw mustaches and beards on all the teachers and, and mess up the yearbook, right? And the dad, and the son comes home and he shows the dad, and the dad's like, this was stupid, <laughs> right? Like, this was really stupid. You don't realize it now, but these yearbooks are, are all, I mean, how many have ever gone back to an old yearbook and looked at pictures, and it's like nostalgia, right? So that, you don't realize that when you get the yearbook, like, it's all about, hey, will you sign my yearbook? Da, 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 da. But, but yearbooks are almost like this thing that you keep on your shelf so that years later you can go back and you can remember, right? And so the dad's like, you, this is something that might not seem important to you now, but years from now, you're going you're gonna to look back at this and you've, you've ruined it. you ruined the yearbook. Now, some of the teachers looked a little better with the... the <laughs> just kidding. Right? But you've ruined the yearbook. And so the dad says, you know what? We'll go back up to the school tomorrow and I'll buy you another one. Right? And that's like, wait a minute. Huh? Like, okay, you got to teach the son a lesson. Make him buy another one. But, the, but see, the, the, the goal of this pastor, the goal of his dad was to always err on the side of grace. Right? He's like, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna make a mistake, I want to make a mistake on the side of grace. And so he, he spends his life trying to teach his children what grace is. And and here we are, fifteen years removed from the story, and the son still remembers that moment as a as a time where grace covered stupid. <laughs> right? Right? Grace covered was a love covers a multitude of sins. Grace covers a multitude of stupid sins, right? Right. So there's this moment of saying, hey, it's undeserved. That son did not deserve to get a new yearbook. He did not deserve to have his father pay for it. He did not deserve, he deserved to be punished. He deserved to deal with his mistake. He deserved it, but, but the father showed grace. Grace is not something we deserve. It's not something we can earn. It's something that's given freely. It's the, if, you look at, if you look at the Old Testament, you look at the, the word grace, it's actually a, a before it became a church word or a Bible word or a religious word, it was like a, a term, almost a banking term. It's, it's the word haras, haris, haris, right? And if you look at it in English, it's spelled charis. So you might know somebody named Karis. Next time you see him, call him Harris. You want to, don't do that, okay? Karis is a good name. But, but it's this word that translates to Greece, to grace, but it was really a gift, a gift. And so you kind of had this situation where it was a gift from a superior to an inferior. And so whenever you're looking at culture, let's just say that there, were, there was an orphanage, right? And there was a shoemaker, and he wanted to give the orphanage a bunch of shoes for the kids so that the... The, the shoemaker would be called a patron, which now is the person that would buy it. But anyways, and this time, this time it was the it was a patron, and this was the person providing whatever it was, providing the shoes. Then you've got, make sure I get these terms, the client, right? And the client would be the kids at the orphanage. Now, this is not, I'm not saying these are terms we should use, okay? This is, we don't want to refer, refer to the gospel in banking terms, right? It's not like that, right? But, but this is what, in the time when they would give a gift, you had the patron and the client, but there was a third person. And this third person was called the broker. And the broker was actually the person that would kind of initiate the whole thing. The broker would go out and say, hey, there's an orphanage here that needs shoes, and he'd go to the client and says, hey, you make shoes. Let's give these shoes to the orphanage. And the broker would actually pay the patron for the shoes so that the clients could have the shoes. You follow? So there's three people in this process of the superior giving a gift to the inferior. And there's a superior. There's a broker. The broker goes out and finds the inferior, pays for the gift that's provided, 
You see where I'm going? The broker is Jesus. The broker said, hey, there are broken people that need a savior. There are broken people who keep turning their back on their God. There are broken people who keep falling short, who keep falling short, and they need the gift called grace. And you know how it's going to be provided? I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to die for their sins. But while they're still sinners, I don't expect them to fix themselves. I don't expect them to, to be able to pull up a chair to the table. I don't expect them to change. I want them to know that this gift is free for them. They can't earn it. Look, if it's free, it can't be earned. You can't have something earned and be free at the same time. He says this is unearned for them. He pays the price so that they, it's a free gift. It's a, what the word gift means well, it doesn't always mean free, right? Like today's Mother's Day, right? So Lauren got a, a water bottle that she loves. She's been asking for. It also had a, she got two water bottles. It also had a bracelet on it that said AL Heart Mom, right? That Adelie helped make. It was really sweet and cute. And so Lauren got this gift, but Addie Lee didn't pay for it. Lauren paid for it. <laughs> right, right. So when Father's Day, Mother's Day, when your kids are young, right, they don't have the money, so it comes out of your account. So Lauren got a Mother's Day gift, but it wasn't free. So other than Mother's Day, right, other than Mother's Day, gifts are free, right? Jesus died on the cross, and he didn't expect you to, to make sure you go to church enough, to make sure you pray enough, to make sure you read your Bible enough. Those are, those are our means for grace. That's the way that grace kind of saturates our life. But the fact that your pardon, your freedom, your forgiveness was purchased by Jesus and given to you freely, that's what it means, this unmerited favor, this unmerited, undeserved, unearned, free gift. All you have to do is receive it. That's salvation, but it's so much more than salvation. It's moving forward in life. It's having the power to overcome temptation. It's having the power to overcome addiction. It's having the power to say no. It's so much more than just a free gift. And that's when we kind of get into the next part of this story in Samuel 9, where we kind of unpack the favor side of this, right? So if it's undeserved, unmerited favor, what does this favor mean? So if you have your Bibles... I'm going to start in verse 1 of 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says, David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul whom I can show? Actually, let's stop there. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul? At this point, if there's a period there, it means doom for whoever's left. Right? Because we talked about the culture at this time is David needs to get rid of everybody that's a threat to his throne. And if there's somebody left in the bloodline of Saul, they're a threat to David's throne. So in this moment, David is saying, is there anybody left? But it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It says, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. He wants to show kindness. This is that favor. This is the honor. This is what comes after the undeserved. He says, now there was a servant of the house of Saul named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And the servant replied, At your service. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered, The king, answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and his, he is lame in both feet. So picture this, right? So you've got this servant who knows about 
Moshebetheth, which is where you can use that name. We're about to get there, right? So he knows about this grandson of Saul, son of Jonathan, and he expects, he knows what happens in this time. And you can almost see he doesn't trust David. Yeah, right. Who do you want to show kindness? You think he's a threat to your throne. So what's the first bit of information he leads with? He's lame in both feet, right? He wants to assure David that our boy Mo is not going to overthrow the throne, all right? He wants to assure David that, look, he's lame. You don't have to worry. And so he says, the king says, where is he? And Ziba answered, he's in the house of Mekir, son of Emil, and Lodabar. Lodabar means no pasture. If we go back to Easter, we kind of talked about when it talks about where people are, there's often significance, right? So this guy's in a place called no pasture, no nutrition, no, it's, it's lonely. It's, there you can kind of, you get a sense. You've got this guy that's crippled on both feet. He can't walk. He can't care for himself. He's in a place called no pasture. You get that picture of where he's at. So the king said, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. And when Mephibosheth, that, there you go, our boy Mo, son of Jonathan, son of, son of Saul, came to David and bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, are you at your service? He replied. And the king said, do not be afraid. Instantly, you see he's afraid. Ziba thought the king thinks he's going to, needs to kill him. There's, listen, when you show grace, when you show grace, it's almost like people are shocked, right? Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where somebody just loses their mind and starts yelling at you and you respond with kindness What's there? Okay, so you've never been there. Me neither. Okay. <laughs> but there's this sense of when you when you love somebody, when you show grace, when your child misbehaves and you show, I can remember growing up and dad yelling, you're going to get a spanking when we get home. You zip it up, right? And the whole time you're praying, let him forget about it. Let him forget about it. Let him forget about it. And you get home and you don't get a spanking. You're like, he forgot about it. Now that I'm a parent, I know he didn't forget about it. He was just showing grace, right? <coughs> There's this moment, there's this moment when you show somebody grace, they're shocked, right? They're in awe. And there's this time where David is trying to show grace to Ziba. He's trying to show grace to Mephibosheth. And he's saying, and then neither one of them trust him because grace is so backwards. It doesn't make sense in our culture. It doesn't make sense in this culture. But, it, but it's undeserved. It, it, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. And you'll get that reaction when you show grace. Imagine what would happen the next time that you want to just go off on your spouse, but instead you show them grace. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> David said, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And so this is kind of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you got to have a better self-image, right? Like, don't call yourself a dead dog. But the truth is, that was the status that Mephibosheth had. He had nothing to offer. Let's go back to unmerited. He had nothing to offer. Even, at, even if he wanted to be a slave, in the kingdom of David. He couldn't do it. He was lame in both feet. We learned earlier that he was lame in both feet. He was crippled, and it wasn't even his fault. When, when Saul fell, there was a, a nurse that was taking care of Mephibosheth, and she dropped him while running away, and he was crippled for the rest of his life. He's crippled for the rest of his life, and it's not his fault. He's now before the king, and he has nothing to offer. He can't do anything in return. And the king says, look, I'm still 
still going to lift you up. Keep reading. Keep reading. He says, I'm going to give you all the land. In verse 9, it says, The king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. So even though he can't take care of himself, you who serve Saul are now going to serve Mephibosheth, which, is, which in this time means that, that the servant Ziba is blessed as well. Because he was going from serving the king, which makes you royalty almost, right? If you're looking at, at servants in this time, to now he was going to be jobless and homeless. But now he's serving the grandson of the king who is being treated like a son of David who is now the king. So Ziba gains more than he could have ever imagined in this process. I'm going to pick back up at verse 11. And Ziba said, Your servant will do whatever my lord king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. He always ate at the king's table. Always ate at the king's table. David takes an act in this moment. If he's teaching his kingdom what it means to be run by grace, they now have a remainder for all of Mephibosheth's life. Because this is not some, hey, let's honor Abner who just passed away. This is forever. He takes this guy who was living in no pasture. He takes this guy who is lame in both feet, who has nothing to offer, who deserves to be neglected and left for dead because he was a part of the regime that was trying to take over. And this guy could even, he could even raise up an army. He could be a threat to David. And David doesn't look at him and say, look, you're not a threat to me. He doesn't look at him and say, you know what? You could ruin everything. He looks at him and says, you are like one of my sons. You now have a seat at the table. You now are royalty forever. This people, Mephibosheth, Ziba, they were afraid they expected death. And what David gave them was more than just life, right? It was more than just letting them get off. He gave them grace upon grace. He, took, he went beyond letting them live, right? And now they're living royalty, eating at the king's table. It's this unmerited favor. It's the, 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 the honor, the going above letting them live. If, if you go to Ephesians chapter 3, I didn't write it down. I think it's Ephesians 3, verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. This is talking Paul talking about Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. It's Ephesians 1. So there's this, this picture of Jesus giving grace, not just saying, hey, you messed up. I'm going to keep you from going to hell. Right? It's not just a get out of hell free card, but it says he lavished what an awesome word. He lavished grace upon you. We, Addie Lee has this book called uh, Dragons Love Tacos, right? And that, there's at this point in the book where it says that dragons love taco parties. But if you're going to have a taco party, you've got to have pant loads of tacos, right? You've got to have tons and tons of tacos. It says to get a boat 
fill it up with tacos, and then you'll have enough for a dragon taco party, right? It's a boatload of tacos. When I, when I read this, right, forgive me, I'm a, I'm a dad, right? But when I read this lavished grace, I see a boatload of grace being poured out on me over and over again. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I des- deserve it with, but God honors me. He does more than get me out of hell and let me catch a few blessings, right? He gives me power. It raises me up. That's this grace, this kindness that that can't be comprehended. It's just, it means, listen, I'm not saying prosperity gospel, right? I'm not saying you come to come to church, surrender your life, and now God's going to take you and you're going to be like a king, right? It's, it's a position. You're no, longer, you're no longer the position of a struggler, right? But you're the position of an heir to the throne. You are adopted by Christ. You see the difference there? Your heart is no longer, I can't get through this life, but it's grace upon grace. It's freedom. It's whatever, whatever feels like you can't get over. It's whatever, whatever keeps coming up in your mind. Whatever you keep using to beat yourself up. Your, your past isn't held against you. right? Your sins are forgiven. Past sins are forgiven. Present sins are forgiven. Future sins are forgiven. That's controversial, right? Like, like God doesn't know what I'm going to You don't know how bad I am. Listen, you don't know how good God is. But that's this grace that's poured out. It's lavished upon us. David looks at him and says, you have a position at the table from now on. See, grace is, grace is this unmerited favor for me. It's empowering. You don't, have to, you don't have to worry about failure anymore. right? Not that you won't fail, but that you're allowed to fail. <laughs> Now, now this is this is kind of scary to preach because you, you say, hey, you're allowed to fail. People are like, well, the pastor said I can go out and sin and do whatever I want, right? Covered by grace. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. And I think that when you see the power of grace, I don't really have to worry about that. Because when we see the price that Jesus paid, it motivates us to live a holy life. It, the grace gives us the power to say no. It's empowering. It's not, it doesn't hold anything against us. And there's this beautiful picture of me falling short, not deserving anything, but God, the King himself, stepping out of heaven, paying the price, and giving me this unmerited favor, this salvation, this grace. But you know, that's really just the first part of grace. Grace has two parts. If you go to Ephesians 3, 1, this is where I was thinking, Ephesians 3, it says, For the reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So Paul is writing a letter. And this is how he starts it. He says, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. You see that picture there? God shows us grace. He gives us grace, not just for ourselves, but that we can show it to others. <coughs> the world will awaken to the first half of the gospel. 
the first half of the gospel, the first half of grace that I'm talking about, right? That's that salvation, that unmerited favor, that undeserved honor that we, that we see with King David. The world will waken up to that. They'll know the joy of what it means to surrender their life to Christ. They'll know what the joy of what it means to be forgiven. They'll know the joy of grace, the power of grace. They'll wake up to that gospel when the church awakens to the second half of the gospel. When we realize that, that we're supposed to live a life showing grace to the others, that means, that means just as much as we don't deserve it, those in your life that don't deserve grace, yeah, the ones that get on your nerves, the ones that are different, the ones that you can't stand to be around, the ones that make you a little worried, we show them grace. When we show them God's grace, they see not us, but God, and their lives are transformed. What if God performed a miracle in the lives of those people it's difficult to deal with? And what if that miracle starts with you showing grace? What would our families look like if we raised our children starting with grace? What would our marriages look like if we we hashed out differences starting with grace? See, there has to be an awakening to the second part of grace, and that's where this grace has real impact. It's more than just on me. It's more than just on my heart, but it's on those around me. It's commitment. Grace is commitment. Listen, there are times where you haven't had enough sleep and your spouse keeps doing the same thing over and over again and all you want to do is bite their head off, right? But there's times there's times in that moment where you don't want to show grace. But if we say, you know what, I'm committed to grace and even in this moment when I don't want to show it, I'm going to assume the best in that person and I'm going to show them grace. There's that moment that this is when the second awakening, this is when the second awakening of grace, this is when that second part of grace comes full force. Even when it's difficult, we err on the side of grace. And listen, this is hard. This is hard because, you know, what if, what if you need to say no? Sometimes grace is tough love, okay? Sometimes grace is not letting somebody do the same thing over and over again. Sometimes grace is not letting them run out into the middle of the street, right? Grace is not always just letting them get off free. But grace is assuming the best. What would, what would it look like if we assumed the best of our neighbor? What, imagine how racism would disappear if we assumed the best in our neighbor. Imagine, imagine what our schools would look like. Imagine what our workplaces would look like. Imagine what our churches would look like if we assumed the best of our neighbor. Kent Keith has a book called The Solemn Revolution, and I just want to read what he calls the paradoxical commandments out of it. It says, People are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdog, but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. 
People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. Grace doesn't make sense. It's backwards. It can shock people. It's unmerited favor that you don't deserve and they don't deserve. But what does our world look like if we receive the grace given to us and we show it to the people that don't deserve it? There's a point where David asks, is there anybody who I can show God's kindness? See, David knows, he knows that if it were up to him, he would not be able to show that kindness. If it were up to him and his mind and his power, he would do away with everybody in the bloodline of Saul. But he knows that it starts with God. The only way that you can show grace to someone else is because grace has been shown to you. We can love others because God first loved us. We can sacrifice for others because God first sacrificed for us. It all starts and ends with Jesus. That's what grace is. It's forgiveness, but it's more than forgiveness. It's power to change, but it's more than a power to change. It's impact. It's freedom. It's undeserved, unmerited favor, honor given to us because Jesus Christ died on the cross. When we look at others through that lens, we can see that Jesus didn't just die for us, but he died for them. And we can begin to see transformation when we live committed to a heart of grace. Let's pray that God will soften our hearts, that we can look at people through the lens that God looks at us. We can show them the same grace that's been shown to us, and let's see what kind of impact we can make on those around us when we not just receive the first part of grace, but we live out the second part of grace. Let's be a people of unmerited favor. Let's be a people of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your death on the cross. We thank you that you gave it all, that you paid the price in full. So often, Lord, I fall short. Never let me lose sight of how great the grace is that you've lavished upon me. I pray that you will be, that revival be a church that is motivated and moved by your grace. It will never lose the weight, Lord. It will never lose its power, that we will never let it become watered down that we become so motivated by your grace and so moved by your grace that we impact Covington, Conyers, Georgia, the world on your behalf. Let us show your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys.